You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the first episode of the Archaeology and Ale podcast. This Archaeology and Ale podcast presents a free monthly series of lectures on all aspects of archaeology, not just the academic stuff. These lectures are part of the Archaeology in the City program, a series of talks, events and activities hosted by the University of Sheffield. The Archaeology in the City program aims to bring archaeology to the public of the City of Sheffield. For those of you outside of the UK, that's in South Yorkshire. Now, thanks to the good folks of the Archaeology Podcast Network, we're very happy to bring the Archaeology and Ale podcast to you as well. The Archaeology and Ale talks are hosted at the Red Deer Pub on Pitt Street in Sheffield. The Deer has long been the Archaeology Department's unofficial extra lecture theatre, so it was the natural venue for our talks. As this talk is recorded in a small room over the bar of a very popular local pub, It's going to have a bit of background noise, though I've done my best to edit that out. I hope that doesn't put you off. The talk is very interesting, and our speaker, Dr. Alessandro Sebastiani of the University of Sheffield, is going to be introducing his talk, Excavations at the Roman Temple Area of Diana Umbronensis at Sorrieto, Italy, 2009-2011. series and it's slowly glowing in popularity even though I'm pretty sure that's more the speaker tonight more than archaeology now but I'll take it anyway. Um, as you all know we've got Sandro speaking tonight on the excavations at the Roman temple area of Diana in, I always pronounce that wrong, he says it much better than I do. <laughs> um, Sandro's had an incredible background to be fair, I was just writing down his like list of bullet points to say as an instruction to him and I had to go on to two separate pieces of paper because I ran out of space on the initial one. Um, in 2009, 2010, around about there, um, oh no, I started start on the wrong page, 2005, sorry Sandra, um, he started as an undergrad uh, and led into his MA uh, in Siena, and he was uh, working on late, med- uh, late antiquity and medieval archaeology, studying and analysing uh, the transition of the medieval city- uh, the cities in those areas, and then... For his PhD, he continued his studies in Siena in 2008 and looked at the passage of cities in Tuscany from late antiquity to medieval as well. Um, whilst he was doing his PhD, because obviously we all know how easy PhDs are and they're not as stressful enough already as PhDs, he started at the University of Nottingham analysing uh, Roman villas in Albania uh, and then um, continued with this at Philadelphia at the Penn Museum as well. Uh, and then in 2009 to 2010, he became the research assistant at the Butrini, Butrini? Butrin. Butrin. The Butrin Foundation in Norwich. Sorry for my pronunciation of everything. Uh, and in 2009, he started his Abarizi project, which uh, is what he's going to talk about today. Um, he continued this, uh, with this project with his Marie Curie uh, postdoc fellowship in 2012 to 2014 in Sheffield University and then 
currently, um, or in 2015, he's a visiting professor in Roman and late antiquity archaeology in the Charles University in Prague. So, pretty impressive CV. Pretty incredible. So, uh, let's give an applause to Sandro. Thank you very much for inviting me to deliver this, uh, this talk. Um, and I choose a specific topic uh, for my project. So I will talk today on the excavations of the Roman temple area of the Anombronensis in Alberese, so in South Tuscany, because just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the first monograph has been published uh, in a certain way, summing up the three years of excavations that we carried out there from 2009 uh, to 2011. And the, <coughs> the excavation that we... Oh, gosh, it's not possible to read, to see the date, sorry, <laughs> but I will tell you. Um, the excavation is part of a wide, uh, of a wide project. Project that started in 2009 as a collaboration uh, among the superintendents, so our Minister of Culture, uh, Cultural Heritage, and me and my two colleagues, and the Comune of Grosseto, the province of Grosseto, the regional park in, uh, uh, in Maremma, the, uh, the landowner uh, of the site, and another company. In 2009, basically, we started to dig uh, uh, the temple area, and that was the first site that we were interested in uh, uh, investigating. In 2010, uh, we received the first research grant from a bank foundation, the Monte de Pasqui Foundation in Siena, which allowed us to uh, keep on doing the excavation at Scoglietto and on another side that I'm going to show you extremely quickly. While in 2011, uh, there was a first turning point in the project. So we started a collaboration with the John Cabot University in Rome. And so we were able to set up proper field schools, uh, principally aimed to uh, American students. And we became an associate project with the British School at Rome. And this allowed my two colleagues to set up a private and professional company in archaeology to manage the, uh, the excavations, the field schools, and also to, um, to promote their career into the uh, professional archaeology and commercial archaeology. 2012, uh, we had a new research grant from the Ente Casse di Spalmi Firenze in Florence to publish the first monograph. That, uh, at the end, we did it. So after three years, it was a tough work, but <laughs> we did it. <laughs> now it's out. And another big turning point, of course, was again in 2012 with the Medicare Fellowship. So the project became uh, a project of the University of Sheffield, the Department of Archaeology. So students, undergrads, and postgrads from Sheffield, they were able to join the excavation and the field schools. In 2013, we were able instead to set up a new collaboration with the University of Queensland in Australia. And with them, we, uh, we set up what we call the Winter School of Material Culture Studies. 
So basically, we got every year we got 11 students coming from uh, from Australia for a month in Grosseto, usually mid January to mid February, and they're going to study the material culture of our excavation. So in a certain way, they're learning first hands um, how to deal with pottery, glass, small finds, coins, any kind of, of material culture, and this collaboration is. Um, it's going on, so we started in 2013, a couple of weeks ago we finished the second edition of uh, the Winter School and we, already, we are already organising uh, the, third, the third year next year, 2016. 2014, uh, we were able to get a new research grant from the Koenig Museum of Glass in New York, uh, the Rackle Grant, to study the glass assemblage and the glass workshops that we found not at the temple area, but in, other, in, a, in a site related and close by to the temple area, but I will show you extremely quickly in the, in the next slides. And we set up, again, the last new collaboration with the Michigan State University, with Professor Doc Fenton, an anthropologist, to study the skeletal remains that we found, again, at the manufacturing district in, uh, in Spolverino. The uh, right now to show you just uh, what we what we knew and what we now know about the territory of Alberese in in the Roman period. The territory, as you can see, is in South Tuscany. It's along the coast, and as you can see, there is a series of different uh, Roman sites. Basically, they are all set along the Via Aurelia Betus, which was crossing this landscape from at least the 3rd century BC onwards. As you can see, I mean, all the dots are different sites. Um, with our project, we did, uh, we excavated the temple area, the Umbroflumen site, and the manufacturing district. So those three sites are the latest ever found in the, in the territory, but we had a background of archeological research showing quite a detailed map of all these settlements. The first one is the site that has never been dug uh, archaeologically, well, investigated archaeologically, but in the late 80s, beginning of the 90s of the last century, um, we were quite, uh, quite lucky to shoot this picture and basically through the crop marks to see the entire plan of a site that possibly could be the, what remains of the Mancio of Asta, which is also uh, recorded in the Tabula Pointingeriana, uh, which is a 5th century roadmap. Of course, we got a medieval copy, and we don't have the, the original, but uh, the distances, well, uh, with, I mean, with miles, uh, make us believe that this is the Mancio recorded in this, in this historical map. Here, the superintendents, they only collected um, finds in a kind of field survey. <coughs> and we are going also to analyze these, uh, this material that they collected in order to get a wider picture of the, uh, of the territory. In uh, really close to that site, um, as you can see, there is, from Google Earth, it's possible to see uh, crop marks that once I lighted, um, they show these uh, 
this part of our settlement, because it's not only this part, there's also uh, these are the crop marks over there. They're extremely close to the Mansium, they're basically just on the other side of the road, which could be the Rustica or a settlement connected to these uh, to this Mansium. Again, this site was never uh, was never dug. But in 2005, the University of Siena did a few survey, and they collected lots, uh, lots of finds in a, in a chronological date, a range of from the third century AD up to at least the sixth century AD. So, um, in a certain way, could be contemporary uh, with uh, with the Mansio. Again, in the 90s, uh, another site was discovered accidentally during agricultural activities and partially investigated and, and then published by the superintendenza, which possibly is what remains of a quite huge extended villa, uh, again set along the Via Aurelia Vetus. Uh, unfortunately, the only published picture is, is this one, but we got quite a nice important information from the stamp tiles. Here you can see in the corner, in the bottom corner, <coughs> because they're, um, they're, they're uh, tiles produced by the uh, Domitian or Barbary uh, family. So possibly this villa was part of the large estates that this senatorial family had in this part of Tuscany. And then these estates, they became imperial estates once Nero arose. The Crucial, crucial marker in the territory is the is the presence of the Via Aurelia Vetus. We know uh, we know about the existence of this road because in historical maps like this one, which is dated to 1815, uh, we got the Strada del Diavolo, which is basically I mean if I have to translate is the Road of the Devil. Uh, because in the Middle Ages, everything that was made by the Romans and pagans was, in a sort of way, created by uh, Saturn or the devil. So they took these, this new uh, place name. And this seems to be what remains of the Via Aurelia Vetus with the remains of a bridge on the last bend of the river. The remains of this bridge, they are... Uh, shown also in other, um, in other maps. This one is 1799. But again, you can see the road arriving to the to the to the last bend of the river, and again they 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 state that there were ruins of a Roman of a Roman bridge. Nowadays, it's possible to see the remains of the of this road as crop marks on the. Uh, uh, on a aerial picture. This one is a uh, aerial picture of 1954, but also if you go on Google Maps or Google Earth, you can see crop marks of these of this road. The again in 2005, when the University of Siena uh, carried out a field survey, they found some scatters of uh, pottery fragments, basically. There, and one specifically 
has been interpreted as a as what remains of a Roman farm. So in a certain way, it's giving just us an idea of the agricultural uh, landscape in this area. So we got a villa, we got a mansio along the Via Aurelia, we got, of course, the main infrastructure of the Via Aurelia, and farms, and then we knew that uh, at least two caves, I just show, I'm just showing one, at least two caves on the mountains, they were reused um, during the Roman period. In this case, the Scoglietto cave is just at the feet of the, uh, of the temple area, the Anombronensis, and has a wonderful collection of Roman pottery from the 3rd century AD at least, late 2nd century, beginning of the 3rd century, up to the uh, second half of the 6th century AD. So there is a long, uh, long use in the, in the late Roman, late antique, late antique period. But another thing that was fundamental uh, was to try to understand the landscape, the environment where all these sites uh, were built during the Roman period. And in this reconstruction, basically, what we want to show is the is how the environment, the landscape, changed within the centuries. Basically, in the Roman time, the temple area of Scoglietto, which, in, just to give you an idea, is roughly what you got the Scoglietto cave. As you can see, nowadays it's more than five, four, five kilometers away from the sea, but in the Roman times, it was facing the sea. So, <coughs> It was not just a hill, it was kind of promontory facing the sea and in a certain way taking control of trade routes and sailors going up and down the Tyrrhenian coast. Moreover, uh, there was a lake, as you can see, that nowadays has almost disappeared. There is a tiny pond in the northern part still remaining as a um, natural uh, park, but the, the, the big the big part of the lake has completely drained out, and now the city of Grosseto is built almost on top of it. <coughs> and as you can see, the Via Aurelia Vetus, or at least a secondary branch of the, of the main Aurelia Vetus, was built along or uh, in between the lake and uh, the sea coastline. <coughs> and this is also important to understand then the role of the sanctuary and why they decided to build a sanctuary in that position rather than somewhere else. So with the Alberes archaeological project basically we are investigating three uh, of these uh, of these signs. Uh, what I show you is what we knew before uh, before the, uh, the beginning of our project and then uh, we decided to focus our attention on three completely different sites, but sharing the same chronologies. So in a certain way, we could have a really wide um, picture view of this territory in the Roman period from, uh, from data, from completely different kinds of data, data sets, um, because we, were, we are investigating a manufacturing district which is set on the last bend of the river Ombrone, which is the first, uh, first picture on, uh, on the right. We uh, are also investigating 
what we think could be the Umbro Flumen Positio recorded in the Tavola Point in Gariana, uh, which is, of course, the, the site in the middle. And, of course, the temple area, there is the one that I'm going uh, today to, um, uh, to focus my talk. The, the temple area, uh, the, the way it was discovered is kind of story, because in 2003, two park rangers, they were, uh, they were going inside the woods to check something, and one of them, he fell down, and he fell down because there was a, what they called a stone coming up from the soil. And then they remove it, possibly because they were upset and angry and they wanted to throw it away, but they discovered there was an epigraph. It was a marble epigraph saying that someone, um, a slave of the, uh, of the Ateri family, was dedicating something, because unfortunately it's not possible to understand what, what, what it was dedicating, uh, was dedicating something to the count of Diana Umbronensis, so Diana of the River Umbrone. And there was the way the site was discovered, because it was completely covered by vegetation, there was absolutely no finds on the surface. <laughs> so when we decided to, um, to open the excavation, in a certain way we were also a little bit brave, because we had no clue where to start to dig. So, in a certain way, luckily, we we decided to uh, to start our hole in the middle, and we intercepted <laughs> accidentally uh, a part of the uh, of a temple, and then from that we were able then to enlarge the investigation. <coughs> in 2005, uh, again there was the University of Siena carrying out the um, the field survey, but they were not able to detect any fragments, and then 2009 we started. We started the um, the excavation. The oh god, really time. Okay, uh, three years of excavation basically uh, were able to to give us information about the um, the settlement sequence starting from the second century BC until the first century BC with the construction of first tiny temple, now we're going to see in detail. Then, in the, uh, from the uh, reign of the mission up to the end of the second century AD, we got the construction of our main temple and the sanctuary developing uh, all around it. While in the, the uh, late second century, beginning of the third century AD, so in the Severan age, uh, we got a partial uh, abandonment of the site, so the sanctuary complex is completely abandoned while the main temple is still uh, is still in use, and we will see how it's still in use. And then, uh, by the mid fourth century AD, the site appears to be uh, almost completely abandoned, but still standing on as an architectural feature. <laughs> and in that moment, we got. Uh, the setting of a tiny necropolis, which again was quite amazing to discover it, because we had um, a real burial and then we had a nice amount of skeletons somewhere else, disturbed and removed and used the backfield um, assistant. In the, by the end of the 4th century instead, 
the site at a certain point was completely dismantled and uh, um, destroyed by someone who went there and pulled down all the walls and as we will see desecrated the area. In the 5th century AD there is a use of the ruins because we got uh, the evidence of some African lamps still arriving at Scoglietto, but on top of the rubble layers. So someone was still continuing to, to worship, but the temple was no more visible. Uh, the, last, uh, the last period is on the uh, first half, or let's say the first 50 years, of the 6th century AD with the construction of a humble dwelling on the ruins uh, of the temple, tiny fences and infrastructures around and we were lucky enough to find a Byzantine numus dating the uh, dating this space which is also the only uh, Byzantine numus ever found in this territory so <clears throat> in a certain way again we were extremely 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 lucky <laughs> and well, man, we got a, a coin specialist who is really good in uh, <laughs> in recognizing these kind of points because they're extremely small and that case was quite deteriorated uh, the, the so now I mean I, I sum up all the different phases and periods now I'm going a little bit into details of every single phase just to show you what archaeology um, was able to give us uh, as material culture and structures. In the uh, second century BC, we got the construction of a first temple area, which basically is just a tiny, tiny, such a tiny shrine with possibly a terminus wall. Show you the map one very good. Let's see. This one that remains that possibly was enclosing the entire area. And this uh, this temple was in use as a main temple, so there is no other structures around. So it was just a tiny dot in the in the landscape until uh, the first century BC. The fifth century BC something changed and changed radically, not only as structures, but as you can see also in the orientation in the axis of the settlement. So what was uh, the main temple before, it's now converted into uh, a thesaurus, which is outside a new terminus wall, enclosing uh, a new area. We are pretty sure that there was a temple in the, in the big white and blank uh, space, but we only found rubble layers underneath the podium of the second century, third century temple. Of course, we couldn't remove uh, the Severan temple, but there are traces, there, are, uh, there is evidence that there was another building, but we don't know in which shape, of course. But in this moment, uh, they built also a cistern which is quite, it's quite long, it's 12 meters long uh, by two meters wide, <laughs> and at least the first three rooms of, uh, of a sanctuary. So the, the settlement is changing a lot and is gaining importance 
relevance within the territory around. With it is during the last years or the last decades or the first century AD instead, it's with the, under the mission that we started to have a great uh, expansion of the uh, of the settlement. We, as you can see, uh, they built two new rooms plus a tiny infirm just outside uh, the, the sanctuary area. And these two rooms are the only one with an oposignum uh, floor, so they got quite a um, uh, rich decorative uh, elements. They were frescoed, so basically we found traces of frescoes on the plasters all around the walls. They got a really nice threshold. I mean, in a certain way, these are really important rooms, of course, in a rural context. But at the same time, they were also building what we thought, what, what we think it is an infirm, which is this absid uh, room, which was instead paved uh, with a mosaic. Uh, unfortunately, the mosaic was surviving just as a tiny bit. Uh, because here the vegetation, the roots, as you can see in the picture, basically they were intercepting the makeup layers, so basically destroyed the um, the floor. And with Commodus, instead, we got uh, the maximum expansion of the of the settlement with the construction of at least other two rooms, um, the so-called room four and seven. Uh, but with just simple cotchopisto floor or opposite spicato uh, floor. But we are sure about the chronology because in the makeup layer there was that coin, a Cistercius, um, minted by Commodus. So it's pretty sure that uh, it's in that moment because really soon after the, the sanctuary complex was, uh, was abandoned. Just to give you an idea, we try to reconstruct in a certain way. The, the final plan of the sanctuary at this apex. And as you can see, it was in a certain way quite relevant <coughs> from the very beginning where, when we had a tiny, tiny, tiny temple in the second century BC. After four centuries, we got quite an expansion. Something changed again in the, uh, in the late 2nd century, beginning of the 1st century AD. As you can see, the sanctuary area is completely abandoned. It's completely disappeared uh, from the plants. And what is surviving instead is the main temple, the one that we couldn't remove <laughs> to, check, um, to check any earlier phase uh, over there. The cistern is still in use. The new rooms built under Commodus are still in use. But the rest of the, uh, uh, of the spaces, of the sanctuary, they were completely, uh, well, yes, they were collapsed. They collapsed and they were also used as building material for this. So basically, who refurbished the main temple, creating the one that uh, we could see, was reusing uh, marbles, building materials from the sanctuary, because we found really thin uh, rubble layers over there, extremely high and thick uh, rubble layers on the on this other side, 
and there were lots of materials matching from the two from the two portions of the settlement. And you, as you can see, I mean they uh, they refurbished or possibly they built ex novo a new uh, a new temple in the in the uh, southern part of the of the site, but they were using marble as I said, but uh, they didn't have enough money for doing this. That's why the the, the marble decoration, uh, I mean the reused marble decoration of the sanctuary, once it was moved into the new temple, was not enough. So to fill the gap, literally, the uh, the people, the workers over there, they used local stone uh, carving and mounting it in the same uh, in the same shape of the marble decorations they they could use. This means in a certain way that. It was important to rebuild the temple, not the sanctuary, but there was not agreed economical uh, investment. So the person who did this need everything that was around because he didn't have enough money to trade materials from somewhere else. The mid-fourth century, the, the temple appeared already to be uh, abandoned, but not destroyed. And in this moment, we record uh, the only burial that we got in situ, which is set along the, the, the western wall of the, of the temple, so that means that they could see still the, uh, the temples, or at least this wall of the temple. And again, lucky enough, we had a coin at his feet, uh, a coin minted under Constantius II, so we know roughly, as a terminus postquem, uh, we got a date around 348-352, so uh, just soon after this <laughs> that we got the deposition of this burial. But as I said, uh, this possibly was not the only uh, the only burial uh, around. So, in a certain way, when we found in 2009 the burial, we uh, planned a strategy for 2010 to discover the rest of the necropolis. Instead, we couldn't find it. There was no. <laughs> in 2011, we discovered the system and we started to remove the rubble layers and we noticed that there were a number of uh, human bones. Then, then they have been uh, analyzed and studied by Veronica Nicetti in a uh, master dissertation last year, and basically uh, they resulted in eight people being well. They were buried somewhere else around uh, around the temple, and then in in some actions they were removed from the primary position and basically used as the backfilling of the um, uh, of the system. And we think that you see in this moment that this is happening. You see, the moment just after, it's at the end of the fourth century, so we are talking about few decades, changes in few decades, really in a quick, uh, in a quick way, someone uh, went to the temple area and decided to dismantle it by cutting down all the walls, so we found these big blocks of masuries all around the perimeter of the temple. <coughs> and 
to this moment it's dated the back feeling of the of the system so you see in this it is in this moment that they intercepted the necropolis and then basically they reused the bones in the system and whoever did this not only destroyed the temple but also went inside the cella of the temple so in the uh, most sacred most sacred area of the temple took the statue inside and brought it outside and chopped it down uh, that's why what we got left is only that piece uh, which is quite big so it was quite a high statue and was found uh, in um, in a context of marble chips so basically they just cut it down outside so in a certain way they desecrated the area and what we found also in these um, in 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 the uh, in the open area in front of the temple, uh, we found this statue completely destroyed. We found lots of coins uh, abandoned there, and we found all the votive deposits smashed uh, smashed down. So for us, this is a clear sign, or is the archaeological sign of the effects of the Edict of Thessalonica when Roman temples should have been converted into churches or demolished. We think that in the case of Scoglietto, um, the temple was demolished and never converted into, uh, into a church. In the 5th century AD, as I said, uh, we, got, uh, we got the evidence of someone still, uh, still going up the hill and offering lamps because we got a nice collection of African lamps dated in the first half of the 5th century which is from the pottery point of view is the latest finds that we got <laughs> so possibly the pagan cult survived in the memory of the people living uh, living around of or, or also of some sailors still uh, going up and down the Tyrrhenian uh, the coast but of course, in a certain way, it was kind of illegal uh, cult. And we found all these votive lamps, and some of them um, are quite entire, so not smashed down. Uh, possibly, uh, uh, we sorry, we found them just on top of the rubble layers. So basically, they were still using that um, uh, that site for a while before the. Uh, First half of the 6th century AD, when uh, once the site was completely forgotten in a certain way, um, someone built a hut in the in the um, southern part of the of the temple, possibly taking advantages of the foundation cut of the apse of the of the temple, and there was a wooden floor, of course, uh, creating a, a walking surface inside the inside the, the, the hut and as you can see lots of postals uh, all around that we found cutting the Opus Picatum square and some other uh, some other context but unfortunately it's not there's not a logical alignment so it's not possible to say precisely it was these kind of structures or something else so possibly we say we always say that possibly there were tiny fences to enclose animals or what remains of other uh, infrastructures that unfortunately they uh, they didn't survive uh, 
as the uh, as the heart. But the meat sensory, uh, again, thanks to the meat uh, and the numus, we got a fire in the uh, in this area. The clay walls of the heart they were basically melting um, or melted down inside and back feeling in a certain way uh, the hole in the ground and the site was completely abandoned and never used um, later on apart from a few people passing by it and losing coins in the 16th century but there's no uh, structures no context we found them on the topsoil so it's just someone uh, going, uh, walking on the um, on the hill, and then in the what, uh, end of the 19th century, beginning of the tw uh, 20th century, uh, there was a tiny um, a tiny infrastructure uh, because possibly there was someone having a vegetable garden there, and we found it in the floor of this structure, but again really high on top of the topsoil. So but it's no more a site occupied uh, by, by any anthropological, anthropological uh, activity. Uh, just to show you some of the, uh, of the lamps that they were forming part of the, uh, of the body deposits, we got lamps, as you will see, from different periods, chronologies, and also provenance. <coughs> They are quite, uh, they are quite common uh, lamps. We don't have any uh, any surprise apart from a couple. This, for example, it's from Anius Rapidorus. Uh, it was we know uh, we know its workshop was in Ostia and active in the second century, third century uh, AD. These are the uh, African lamps. And this is the unique, that's the uh, the only surprise that we had. That's why it's in the cover of the book. <coughs> uh, because it's an African lamp, it's made in Tunisia. But uh, we were not able to find any parallel anywhere. So in this moment, at least, it's the only uh, published example in the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. But... Um, and it's nice because got these, I mean, this face of a slave, possibly or a gladiator, in the, um, and it was one of the suspended lamps. So there is a hole here on the nose. So it was used as a suspended lamp. The, uh, the coins that we found, again, apart from the numus, they are quite common uh, coins. They were all part of the, Votive deposits because they were in a wonderful state of preservation, so they didn't circulate it a lot. We found uh, 122 coins, and only two, if not wrong, were not readable, all the others were um, recognizable. <coughs> and again, they span from uh, the first century BC up uh, with Byzantine uh, numus uh, to the uh, 6th century. AD, in this case, in this map, where you got the underlined uh, places are the means uh, producing the coins that we found in, uh, in Scoglietto. So in a certain way, also giving us um, an idea of trade routes and the provenance of the coins. And of course, from the material cutoff point of view, we had also glass 
and uh, portrait that we will see a uh, little bit in, in detail. But I put this glass, these glass glass, <laughs> because it, it, it's a glass made of glass, and the it's it's kind of a unique. It's it's quite rare. And it's, um, it's dated to the mid-4th century, just before the abandonment of the site. It was quite well preserved because it's from, in, on one side it's from the rim down to the base. And it's, uh, we again, lucky enough. So this, instead, is the, is the epigraph <laughs> that started everything in a certain way. It's not really a high quality. Uh, epigraph it was a little bit uh, corroded by, by the soil, but it was possible to read Pianum Bronensi Dionysius Poateri, uh, something Serpos Donum Dedit. And this has been dated to the, um, to the end of the first century AD, uh, beginning of the second century AD, as well as uh, these two uh, statuettes. That we found inside uh, the Sachel room, one depicting for sure Diana um, dressed as a hunter, and the other one could be uh, both a muse, uh, someone suggested us that it could be Isis, um, but it's quite hard, honestly, to, um, to be sure about the, um, the representation. And as you can see, you are in this, this is the other piece. Uh, of the statue possibly uh, inside the, the cello of the main temple but there were also other kind of architectural features like columns and bases possibly for other uh, for other statues or other uh, elements nice decorations in marble and again this is just of course a selection of the uh, the collection and these uh, stem tiles they are quite important for us because in a certain way they mark a turning point in the uh, uh, in the sequence because they belong to these Gobati Flicklina so it's the workshop of the Gobati family which was active from the reign of Domitian up to Traianus, Traian or Hadrian which is the moment when not only Scoglietto but in the uh, in the entire territory of Alberese, we got a huge construction phase in all the settlements. So they were ordered from, uh, from Rome by someone who had uh, lots of money to invest on the territory, rebuilding the sanctuary, uh, well, building and enlarging the, the sanctuary in Scoglietto. But for example, at the manufacturing district of Spolverino, it was the moment that it was built the entire um, the entire settlement with these tiles, so certain ways are kind of signature of a project. Uh, so even if they're in a certain way quite common, it could, they could be in a kind of way a little bit anonymous, instead, uh, in the proper context, they are uh, they're extremely important. The everyday life at the sanctuary of course, it's made up of pottery, lots of pottery coming from, uh, from Africa. <laughs> and not only tableware, but also cookingware, like in this, in this case. And of course, amphorae. The, uh, the amount of pottery, in a certain way, seems to increase in the 3rd century AD. And of course, these um, 
this is the result of the the, um, the expansion of the trade routes from Africa up to the uh, the Iranian coast, and we witnessed this not only at the Temple area but also in all the other sites. <coughs> Just to conclude, really quickly. Uh, okay, so uh, the Temple area Scoglietto are always represented for us a territorial marker along the ancient uh, sea coastline. That means that when the Romans conquered these parts of Tuscany, they started to set up the territory to create markers to, in a certain way, as you, um, as you know by reading Rodin and Bussell, to connect dots in the, uh, in the landscape. The sanctuary, of course, is a religious place, but it is not only a religious place. It is also serving, in a certain way, as a metaphor of a lighthouse in the territory, so that people around, they knew the existence of the sanctuary, and it's not a case that just after the construction of the Via Aurelia, which is the main infrastructure, they decided to build the this sanctuary. The sanctuary is also an economic place, of course, and is on the borderline uh, between the Ager Cosanus, which is just south, and the, um, the Ager Cosellanus, which this uh, represents the, uh, uh, the final point. And of course, it's dedicated to Diana because it was set in a wild environment. <coughs> the, as the city of Bruselle, which is, of course, is the main urban center around, flourished within the Flavian period, that also the sanctuary was reconstructed and refurbished. And that's what we saw uh, from the uh, late first century BC onwards. And this is especially under the reign of Domitian, and then continued in, uh, with Trajan and Hadrian, that there is a major investment in the, uh, in the temple area. These, uh, in a certain way, could have been seen as the, uh, the imperial power who, in a certain way, uh, wanted to uh, reconstruct infrastructures, so not only uh, roads and ports, but also these metaphorical lighthouses everywhere, like the temple on a promontory, because they served to connect the dots. <laughs> and these investment and the signature we saw it as the uh, Gobati, uh, Gobati style, basically, <laughs> this investment produced the reconstruction and refurbishment of this area, the construction and manufacturing district, and several different uh, construction phases in the pillars around and in the territory, not only in the territory of Roselle, but also uh, south in the Ager Cosanus. But of course, as Septimius Severus uh, arose, the temple laid a new complete reassessment. That's what we uh, we have seen. So by the first half of the third century AD, the sanctuary is abandoned, demolished, and used as a quarry for building materials. The main temple uh, it's completely refurbished and remained in use uh, together with the cistern until the mid fourth century, and. <laughs> The, uh, archaeologically, I think it's extremely important uh, what we found as a main phase at the end of the 4th century uh, that possibly is the result of the Edict of Thessalonica. 
And that is, in a certain way, a big turning point in the site because it was never used again as, um, uh, as a religious site. As we, I mean, just to sum up, as, as we saw the pagan cult continued a little bit, but then uh, the, uh, the area was completely refurbished with a circular hut. And that's the moment in the mid 6th century that we got not only the, the, the final abandonment of, the, of this site, but also all the other sites that we investigated as the Andres Atrocio project. So the manufacturing district is completely abandoned and there is a necropolis. The villas around the latest uh, fragments of pottery that we got, they uh, dated to the mid 6th century. And apparently also the Via Aurelia Vetus was kind of abandoned or at least no more secure enough uh, to be used. And that possibly already from the 5th century when Rutilius Namazianus is going back to Gaul and prefers to sail rather than uh, going uh, through the Via Aurelia. But the mid-6th century represents the final and turning point of the territory. After that, something changed in the environment. Possibly uh, the landscape became much more marsh uh, marshy. <laughs> so all the sites along the coast that were abandoned and people moved back into the mainland. The entire area of Alberese was completely abandoned until the Middle Ages when was once again re, uh, um, reused by, uh, uh, by human beings. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the first Archaeology in AL podcast. Now, here's the legal stuff. Please note that the content of this recording is copyright Dr. Alessandro Sebastiani, and the recording is copyright the University of Sheffield. We're still getting our social media presence sorted out, so watch this space next month for a link to our Archaeology in the City webpage and social media accounts. I'll include some links to Dr. Sebastiani's publications and to the University of Sheffield's engagement program. If you're in Sheffield or South Yorkshire, our next talk is on Thursday the 26th of March at 6pm upstairs at the Red Deer on Pitt Street, so do come along. If you can't make it, keep an eye out for the following week when the podcast will be online. Thanks again to the Archaeology Podcast Network for hosting our Archaeology and AL talks. We hope you enjoyed this first one and we'd love to hear from you. podcast features royalty-free music from bensound.com. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.